Welcome to the Hidden Body Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Abetti. Thanks for joining me. We're here with Dr. Emerin Mayer. Uh, he is the executive director of the Oppenheimer Center for Stress and Resilience and the co-director of the Digestive Diseases Research Center at the University of California, Los Angeles. He has studied mind-body brain interactions for the last 40 years with a particular emphasis on bidirectional communication between the brain, the gut, and its microbiome. He's the author of more than 300 scientific publications and several books, and his research has been supported by the National Institutes of Health for the past 25 years. He's appeared on National Public Radio, NPR, Public Broadcasting System, PBS, and the award-winning documentary, In Search of Balance. His work has been written about in the Atlantic, Scientific American, Times, New York Times, The Guardian. Dr. Mayer is the producer and co-director of an upcoming documentary film called Interconnected Planet. Dr. Mayer has written The Mind-Gut Connection, as well as The Gut-Immune Connection, where he discusses the incredible complexity of the gut and how we have largely ignored the critical role of the gut and its connection to the brain and its turn, its connection to health. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Mayer. Um, let's just jump into it. You, yeah, thanks, thanks, Sarah, for inviting me to be on that. Yeah, uh, definitely. Podcast. You talk a lot in your book about how the gut before was seen as just kind of a, a crude digestive machine, and but then you discuss the gut's kind of incredible nervous system, immune system, and endocrine system. And you make the argument that if our gut's sole function was to manage digestion, why would it contain this unparalleled assembly of specialized cells and signaling systems? So can you elaborate a little on these three systems and their significance and why you feel like they're so important for our health? Yeah, so this is a very important question. And um, uh, it's it's really, you know, this change in our viewpoint of the gut from a simple digestive organ with different specializations from the esophagus, stomach to, I mean, I still have my slide set, the original slide set from when I was teaching this in physiology to UCLA students. <laughs> um, we had these mechanistic, you know, um, uh, images of, of what the digestive system does. Mm -hmm. And people have been, scientists have been working in different aspects. So some people have looked at the, the gut's immune system, others have looked at the endocrine cells, others have looked at uh, the enteric nervous system or the, the, the little brain of the gut. But few people have sort of put this together the way it's happened now with the microbiome. So all of a sudden we realize these are not isolated systems that, that operate somewhere inside of us, but they're all part of a very complex um, uh, you know, of, of, a, of a very complex network of interacting cells that plays, that I would say is probably, uh, it's different from the other organs for sure. So mm -hmm. if you look at the, at the heart, um, that's a mechanical pump. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you look at uh, the kidneys, it's a filter. Um, to look at the lungs, it's, um, um, it's a device to get um, oxygen, you know, out of the air. Mm -hmm. uh, but the gut is very different. So the gut extracts the nutrients, obviously, but then it does all these other things that are disseminated throughout the body. Um, so we knew this even before the microbiome science exploded about, you know, 10 years ago, starting 10 years ago. But um, 
um, we we didn't really connect all the dots as we do now. That um, essentially, um, you know, it links now the food that we eat, the, the parts of the food that interact with the that require the microbes to to break it down, um, and then the close interactions of the gut microbes with the gut-based immune system. Seventy percent of our, um, um, you know, of of our immune system is localized in the gut, um, mm -hmm. and then how that interaction, if something goes wrong, um, spreads inflammation throughout the body. And our interest has been particularly in in the in the brain. So that uh, communication pathway from these various gut-based systems to the brain, um, you know, is something that has. Um, you know, excited the the imagination of uh, the oh. public press and the mainly the the lay media and and also you know for a lot of scientists. So yeah, no, that that's amazing. Yeah, you talk a lot in your book, as you were saying, about a lot of the immune system resides in the gut, which is so fascinating, and also kind of it has its own nervous system, as you as you say, the enteric nervous system that you almost refer to as the second brain with about like 50 to 100 million nerves, maybe as many as in the spinal cord. That's just so interesting. Yeah. And that is, you know, that, that's probably, um, I always like to tell that, that story, how this goes back in evolution, that the most primitive marine organisms, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, um, that that you know uh, microbes essentially uh, enter the the inside of these these tiny uh, organisms and um, um, started interacting with with a nerve net that these mm -hmm. or these these are called hydra mm -hmm. and um, that design if you look at a picture of of a hydra and the nerve net around it mm -hmm. and compare it put it next to a picture of the gut and mm -hmm. look at the networks of the enteric nervous system around it, it's almost identical. So wow. if you didn't put a caption on it, you know, you <laughs> you wouldn't be able to say what's what. Yeah. And, and, and that indicates that for hundreds of millions of years, uh, that enteric nervous system design has been, you know, with, mm -hmm. with living organisms mm -hmm. and, and you find it everywhere in every. Yeah. Like in a symbiotic way. That's so interesting. You talk a lot about how the gut is one of the largest storage facilities of serotonin nearly 95% of the body's serotonin. What do you think is important about this and maybe its implications for the future? Yeah, I don't think the, the last word on this is, is out yet. So certainly mm -hmm. one function of the serotonin is to play a, a prominent role in the regulation of the enteric nervous system, mm -hmm. like the, uh, you know, the contractions, um, the secretions, um, peristalsis, uh, they all involve different, about 14 receptor subtypes for serotonin on enteric neurons. And so a lot of that serotonin that's there, um, you know, plays a role in in, in, in this modulation and regulation. Um, but interestingly, these in the last few years, we have learned that these serotonin cells that are interspersed between our regular gut cells, they, they have these extensions are called neuropods, mm -hmm. which they are connected to nerve endings of the, the, the vagus nerve, um, mm -hmm. possibly sympathetic nerve endings. And so serotonin, if, if these cells are stimulated, serotonin um, 
through the synapse with the nerves activates, you know, these vagal afferents and generates signals to the to the brain. Uh, serotonin itself does not cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, there's actually very low concentrations in the blood of free mm -hmm. serotonin. Mm -hmm. So um, there's kind of this hidden pathway, you know, must but must be very important in regulating homeostasis in the in the brain in the brainstem that goes up through the vagus nerve. But um, mm -hmm. a third role potentially is some of that serotonin is being released into the gut lumen. And um, it's taken up by microbes. Uh, so these microbes have the same molecules, serotonin transporter, that wow. um, that we have in our nerve cells that we can block with mm. with Prozac and other you know antidepressants. Um, what this does, what the serotonin content of the microbes, you know, what what physiological or pathophysiological function that has, uh, we don't you know we don't really know. Um, but it's it's a very it's 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 a, it's it's such a central regulator of um, of vital functions, you know, in our in our brain and in our gut. That it's it's definitely it's a, the quintessential um, brain gut hormone. I would say, you know, interesting, interesting. Why do you um, you talk about this in your book that the U.S. continuously ranks one of the lowest in health outcomes, but continues to pay the highest for his health care. And you kind of suggest that maybe the current medical model may not be working for all diseases. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so this, this could be a long, you know, long story. So we're going to try to make this as, as possible. So, um, you know, Western science is basically a reductionistic approach to reality and um you know, it's based on hypothesis testing and uh, either proving or refuting certain hypotheses that requires you isolate the object of observation from all other influences. Um, so it's it's very different from what real life is. Real life now we understand is is a network of of interconnected cells. Um, so everything is essentially connected and uh, plays some role in in in, in this network. And if you want to understand the system, mm -hmm. we have to understand the network properties. Mm -hmm. And um, so the reductionistic model of Western science or Western medicine, obviously, in many ways, has been phenomenally successful. We see this now, you know, just the last year with the vaccine development for COVID-19, you know, which is unbelievable. It just could have wiped, wiped out, you know, yeah. a good part of uh, human humans on, on, on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so certain areas, this model works really well. Um, in other areas, we've realized it's, it's, it's way too limited. It just doesn't uh, correspond. So for example, Genetics, you know, when when the human genome was was first um, characterized, there was all this excitement, enthusiasm. We can uh, characterize, fingerprint, treat all diseases. That proved to be true for a few monogenetic diseases, where this reductionistic approach works, but it didn't work for the rest, where hundreds of genes are involved in and contribute very little to the variance of, you know, ultimately the, uh, the, the, the body. Um, so what has happened is a, a discipline of genomics has um, developed, which looks at gene networks and how these networks interact with genes and um, different types of DNA, non-coding DNA and um, 
And so that this is a good example. The microbiome is another example. You know, we have hundreds of trillions, 40 trillion microbes in our gut. The initial approach to that was, well, let's isolate individual microbes and uh, ideally patent it and then, uh, you know, change them or knock them out or give them back in a probiotic. Well, that approach apparently is not really working that well. It worked in pathology where we can isolate one bad um, microbe and then you know, target this with, with treatments. But in what, what has happened, microbiome science developed. So now we look at networks of microbes um, interacting with each other and producing um, as, as, a, as an ecosystem, you know, producing molecules that then affect us. And that is really, it's been happening in many disciplines of, of, of science. So, you know, genomics, microbiomics, um, you know, this, um, uh, so I, I think what, we, what we're realizing is with our traditional approach in medicine, we can well understand certain diseases, treat them well, uh, very effective medications, but then there's a whole range of other diseases that this approach doesn't work, and that includes all these, you know, what I've called this epidemic of um, chronic non-infectious diseases that are now eating up most of our healthcare uh, resources and uh, investments. So this would be, um, you know, cardiovascular disease, it would be obesity, metabolic syndrome, um, cancer. So these are all, I, I would call network diseases, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't. Uh, and I, I think this shift in this paradigm shift is gradually entering certainly entered science on, on almost all levels, um, not quite on the medical school curriculum. I don't know what your experience has been. Certainly didn't exist when I went to medical school, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of how much of that is actually emphasized today, you know, how different the world were, yeah. we're dealing with. No, I, I agree. And I, I wish there was a little bit more in medical school. That's kind of why I'm, I'm hoping with this podcast to, to, you know, talk a little bit more about this in the medical community, because yeah, you're right. I do think there's still a very, you know, disease oriented. So as you were saying, you know, once you have diabetes, once you have cardiovascular disease, what medication can I give you? What insulin dose do you need? What, you know, beta blocker, calcium, what, you know, what kind of medication can I give you almost to suppress the symptoms, to suppress the, the numbers that I'm seeing instead of kind of, as you're saying more, no, 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 let's take a step back. Let's see kind of exactly what may have led to this in the first place. Yeah. yeah. What is, what, what has led to it and what, what could we do to actually, so for example, you know, it's these, these multidisciplinary approaches yeah. to these chronic diseases, which always, in, in my opinion, should include a, a component that addresses the, the, the brain part or the mind part yeah. um, that, that addresses the you know, the, the, the target organ addresses diet, um, li many lifestyle factors. I just had an earlier conversation with somebody. Um, it's, it's kind of remarkable how, you know, until recently, I mean, this is changing now. So like, for example, our division now has a, has a, a wellness center um, in it with dietitians and uh, therapists and uh, wellness coach. And, and that's happening at several, um, Mm. academic centers. So I, I think th there is a realization that uh, this traditional approach, part of it is that this has been slower, 
uh, is financial. You know, uh, there's something that I like to call the uh, pharmaceutical industrial, uh, <laughs> the pharmaceutical medical industrial complex, yeah. which in this country at least is geared towards maximizing profits. Yeah. And our current disease models are very, very profitable. You know, like, uh, you know, autoimmune diseases. So all these biologics that we have now. So you don't, in some ways, you don't really know what causes a disease because now you can make millions, hundreds of millions by having these biologics. And you only need to open the, the TV in the evening and look at these commercials, <laughs> you know, nonstop. Yeah, um, and, and then there's sort of, you know, cleverly mixed with people that that do some exercise, but it's <laughs> <laughs> really like it's what's yeah. you know, um, yeah. no, I agree. That definitely is a is a big point that yeah, you're right, we have to acknowledge. You talk a lot about the research on mice models that suggest the complexity related to the gut microbiome that we were previously unaware of. And you talk about a couple of studies that um, if it's okay, we'll go over. One about how transferring fecal pellets containing gut microbiota from an extroverted mouse could change the behavior of the timid mouse, making it more like the extroverted donor mouse. And also a similar um, experiment, transplanting stool from an obese mouse with a voracious appetite to a leaner mouse, turning that leaner mouse into the same overeating animal. What is going on here? That is so interesting. What do you feel like? Yeah, no, this has obviously been fascinating. This has fascinated me. And quite honestly, when this first came out, these studies, I didn't really believe it because mm -hmm. I thought we could explain most of the things that, that I was interested in with just brain-gut interactions without mm -hmm. the microbes. Um, <clears throat> but this has sort of gotten to the next stage already. You know, um, So now we can take fecal samples, fecal material from... Um, from humans, you know, with obesity, like before and after bariatric surgery, mm -hmm. put them into germ-free mice. And then uh, if it if this comes from an obese donor human, that the lean mouse will gain weight as well, will start eating. Um, and if it comes from somebody who has undergone bariatric surgery and has lost weight, mm -hmm. this will not happen. So something, so not only that, there's something in the human gut that, um, or in the human feces, you know, microbes, that induces a change in metabolism and feeding behavior of the mice, but also that you can remove this if you treat that, that human uh, patient, you know, before the uh, transplant. And, um, yeah, so this is the stage where we're now. So in quite a few areas, in depression, in uh, obesity, um, autism spectrum, you know, you can now do these, these human to mouse transplants and you get some indication of the mechanistic wow. um, aspect of it. And it's still not the final proof, you know, that the microbes, um, that human microbes really cause these diseases or um, certainly play a, an important role in them. But it's getting pretty close, I would say, you know. Yeah, not only about the the you know the gaining the weight or changing an extroverted mouse. There's also when you take the you know the, the pathogen from one of these 
mice that have like a, what's it called? An absence of gut microbes. Mm -hmm. They see a significant alteration in the development of their brain too, especially areas involved in emotional regulation. These yeah. are yeah. so interesting. It, it's really fascinating. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it started whole new fields in, mm-hmm. in psychiatry and uh, understanding of psychiatric diseases. It's been relatively slow, uh, I would say, in psychiatry to be adopted as a major because we have relatively effective drugs, you mm-hmm. know, particularly for, uh, I mean, not for obesity and not for uh, food addiction, but certainly yeah. for depression and, and anxiety. Um, and I still need to be convinced that uh, manipulating the microbes right now, we can do it mainly with diets, yeah. you know, or with probiotics, that that alone will be sufficient to really turn a, a patient with depression or severe anxiety disorder into a healthy person. I, I'm not convinced of that yet, okay. but we're just at the beginning of this field. You know, we, we will have, um, we don't understand exactly yet what, the abnormality in the metabolites that the gut microbes produce um, are responsible for what components of depression and what subtypes of patients. But people are working on, you know, genetically engineering microbes to to do certain things like to produce, to be more effective in producing short-chain fatty acids, which is this anti-inflammatory metabolite or GABA, you know, which could potentially be an anxiolytic compound. Mm-hmm. Um, so these microbes can be programmed really to do produce anything that you insert the gene for. And so it's just open up um, sort of a whole new field of, of, of science and development that will, you know, certainly in the next 10 years, we'll see some pretty dramatic results, I think. Interesting. Yeah. You're talking about these metabolites that, that the microbiota can, can produce. You say there's, I think some 8 million microbial genes in the gut, 400 times more than in the human genome. And you talk about how of the thousands of different metabolites in our bloodstream, up to 40 of them, 40% of them come from our gut. And because our gut microbiota appears so central to the way we sense emotion, anything that modifies the metabolic activity of the microbiota, including stress, diet, antibiotics, probiotics, can in principle modulate the development and responsiveness of your emotional, like kind of generating circuits. It's kind of what you're saying, correct? Yeah, no, this, yeah, this is well summarized. And I mean, there are, there are phases in the development of this system, you know, which I like to call this brain gut microbiome system. So it's it's programmed, the basics are programmed early in life, the first three years of life. Um, <clears throat> where initially, you know, the, the microbiome is mainly determined by the mother's um, vaginal and, and gut microbiome. And then uh, gradually it's um, with um, food intake. So first it's further programmed by uh, breast milk. There's molecules in there that are targeted specifically at the microbes. Then later with... Um, you know, with table food. So this is developmental phase. And by age uh, three, that programming is pretty much completed in its basic architecture. Um, so anything that happens in these first three years when starting in utero really um, will have a significant effect on this, how this brain gut microbiome system works uh, throughout life. And um, the things that are happening in the first three years, you know, C-sections, um, antibiotic treatment, 
starting in the delivery room, um, you know, the mothers get um, prophylactic um, um, antibiotic for, for, for strep, a strep in, uh, infection. Um, then, um, you know, uh, breastfeeding versus formula feeding. So there's a lot of factors during this developmental period that that have been altered in, in Western and modern societies. And all of this has probably taken a toll on the development of the microbiome. And maybe as I expand in my book, um, you know, could be one of the major reasons why we see many of the, the diseases that didn't really exist to that degree when I went to medical school. And that could be the, um, the autoimmune disorders, which have increased. It could be the, um, um, the allergies, like peanut allergy didn't exist. But also these other chronic um, um, non-infectious inflammatory diseases. So all of these diseases are characterized by um, an abnormal reactivity of the immune system. They're not the same, but uh, you know. And um, so mo most of this damage is done really, I would say, early in life. But then you have a period as an adult where you can, where you can still modify the overall um, interactions, mainly through diet um, in, a, in, in a positive way. Mm -hmm. You will not be able to, to totally compensate for the damage that's been done because part of the damage is also is cumulative. So over generations has been shown in, 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 in mice and in rats that, for example, if um, on an unhealthy diet, so a high fat, high sugar diet, uh, low fiber, that the first generation of rats uh, where the mothers were fed this food have a reversible abnormality in the microbiome. And then going down subsequent generations, it gets worse, and at some point it cannot be reversed again. It becomes permanent, mm. which means extinction of certain organisms. You know, just like what we see in, in macro uh, ecosystems. So first, the, the numbers go down, then there's a few left of, of a certain species, and then they're, they're gone. Mm. And so we cannot bring those back right now, at least, um, that, that are gone, but we can bring back up the ones that are very low that are threatened from extinction, you know? And so we have a quite a bit of, um, of influence, even in somebody, and I've seen quite a few patients who had all the bad things happening early on in life, and they suffer from all kinds of allergies and have IBD, and, um, but they can still, with a healthy diet, you know, lead a fairly normal life. Not everybody has to get chronic uh, lifelong diseases. Yeah. So that's... And I think you mentioned it in your, in, in your question early on, that health of the microbiome, so diet and these other developmental factors play a big role, but then in the adult, the brain also plays a big role. So mm -hmm. chronic stress, for example, will, mm -hmm. has equally bad effects on gut microbial diversity and richness and um, as, as a bad diet has. And if you combine the two, as is very common, you know, in 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 the U.S., particularly now during the pandemic, for example, you know, bad diet and chronic stress over a year from mm -hmm. various sources is obviously, um, you know, the worst situation that you could put your microbiome in. And, exactly. 
Yeah, there's an, there was an interesting study you talked about that mice that were exposed to chronic levels of stress showed a decrease in the lactobacilli population in their gut and their depression-like behavior. The degree of the depression-like behavior was closely related to the amount of lactobacilli lost. That's so interesting. And we know that mechanism, at least in the mouse, you know, okay. is uh, lactobacilli produce um, uh, uh, produce hydrogen peroxide, which mm-hmm. inhibits the the transformation of uh, tryptophan, essential mm-hmm. amino acid, mm-hmm. into um, into canurinine. So canurinine is is a bad um, a metabolite of tryptophan, and so if the the abundance of these lactobacilli goes down, there inhibition of that pathway goes down um, so wow. more the tryptophan is converted now to this this bad metabolite yeah. and less to serotonin the the good one you know so that has and in the mouse mm-hmm. I and mean, this shows up also this this demonstrates very drastically in the mouse this could be reversed by giving these mice a probiotic, yeah. lactobacilli. Mm-hmm. In humans, unfortunately, that doesn't work that easily. Okay. You know? okay. <laughs> so, and that, that's you know that just illustrates hundreds of experiments where yeah. something works really well in the mouse, right. and it doesn't work in humans yet. So, this is a challenge to overcome that that gap, that translational gap. Totally. You talk about you know the impact of chronic stress. Can you kind of touch on the concept of leaky gut and its association between chronic stress? What exactly is it, and why would stress maybe exacerbate it? Yeah, leaky gut is a term that I first heard from some of my patients, you know, probably ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, like, what are you talking I, about? <laughs> yeah. And I never talked uh, took that serious, you know. Yeah. So. They said their functional medicine practitioner told them that, and um, but then you know, like ten years later, now this is a term that's used in scientific articles in science, even, yeah. <clears throat> and essentially is the the lay term for um, increased gut permeability and mm-hmm. uh, a, a very important concept that's probably the centerpiece of. Of a lot of these diseases that we, you know, have been talking about, it's so normally the microbes in the gut, even though they're very close, the microns away from the immune cells, they're they're very effectively separated by two kind of layers: a mucus layer and an epithelial cell layer. Um, epithelial cell layer is very tight, you know, kind of linked together with with tight junctions and the mucus layer is thick enough so microbes can get into the the inside of it but not penetrate it and go all the way to to the epithelial cells so if that layer is intact um, then none of the microbes or their surface cell wall molecules can come in contact with immune cells so you will not get this low-grade immune activation in the gut and beyond but what happens with chronic stress, just like with an unhealthy diet, you get thinning of the mucus layer. And, and much of this is also, again, derived from animal models. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a thinning of the mucus layer. So now the microbes can actually contact uh, dendritic cells, immune cells that have, that have sensors that stick into the one side of the mucus layer. Mm-hmm. And they can start so this immune cascade in, in, in the gut. 
and if that, uh, you know, if, if, if then the immune cells get activated, they produce cytokines, they loosen these tight junctions <coughs> in the epithelial cell layer, mm -hmm. and now intact microbes or cell wall components can get through oh. and, um, and activate uh, what's called toll-like receptors, TLRs, mm -hmm. which then lead to cytokine production. And that starts this whole avalanche, you know, that then uh, goes through the whole body. So stress has been shown in many, you know, mouse and rat models earlier. Mm -hmm. And and these are chronic, these are pretty severe stressors, you know, that we, we that uh, scientists use in these, in this, in these animal models, like, you know, exposure to cold, um, I mean, I don't want to even mention those because a lot of people would be <laughs> opposed to to animal experiments anyway. Mm -hmm. But um, I think what's what's important in, in in humans that that same mechanism may happen with. I mean, it doesn't happen when you when you have a bad day and you're stressed by an exam. You know, it's not if you are stressed every day and you're under chronic stress. Uh, then I think this is much more likely to happen. Um, if you're on the traumatic stress, you know, like post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, it's probably also likely to happen. Um, that research to show these um, systemic immune activation, which is always kind of a, an indirect measure of gut permeability, mm -hmm. then, um, yeah, there's a growing number of studies in humans that sort of demonstrate that that's the case. I would say in in the US population, the combined chronic stress, life stress with uh, the unhealthy diet, both of which affect that 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 leakiness of the gut uh, in the same way, uh, probably result in probably 50, 40 percent of the US population wow. will have some degree of that leaky gut. So wow. that would be my guess. That's so interesting. You know, there have been some studies with the mice where they've been given probiotics observed to have decrease in anxiety-like behavior. And you kind of talk about in the book how the gut microbiota produce neurotransmitters that could change emotional behavior that may, um, that may like our gut microbiota may be our own, as you say, Xanax factory. There was that research project involving women who ate probiotic-enriched yogurt conducted by Kristen Tillich. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, so certainly, you know, microbes produce a lot of these what we call neuroactive um, metabolites, mm -hmm. and they generate them from, um, to a large degree, from our diet. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mentioned, and I'll, I'll say a few more, uh, few more words about this, from from tryptophan, what's being generated from, from tryptophan. <clears throat> but it's probably applies to... Um, to to, 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 to many molecules that are similar in in their chemical composition to our human uh, transmitters, like GABA is one. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with the GABA story, again, you know, this um, was a very spectacular paper early on, both in, in, in mice and then with a human brain imaging study. It's, it's put into question uh, if the amount of GABA that's being produced by the microbes and then absorbed and makes it to the brain intact, uh, if that's sufficient to really exert an effect on, on, 
emotional centers within the brain on, on the, mm-hmm. the GABA receptor, the same benzodiazepine receptor within the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, with with tryptophan, you know, th- that that story is is actually very intriguing because it's it's sort of gone beyond that. Um, so tryptophan is being metabolized into three different types of major pathways. Mm-hmm. We talked about the serotonin in these antichromaffin cells, and I got um, talked about the canuronin, which is sort of the bad cousin of, of, of serotonin. And then there's another one, the indoles, an indole pathway. And some of these indole metabolites, which can only be produced by the microbes. So the microbes have that enzyme. We don't have it. Um, that can do this transformation. And so one of these metabolites in doxyl uh, sulfate has now been identified to be uh, present in, in, in higher concentrations in the circulation, but also in, in the brain of people with, uh, with Alzheimer's disease and with um, autism spectrum disorder. Interesting. So um, I, I mean, I always use that example because that's sort of the tightest story um, going from you know, from chemical reaction and the enzymes that produce these all the way to the human disease. Um, but this may be true for many others. You know, um, um, it's been shown that um, other microbes are involved in, um, in, in metabolizing lactic acid into short-chain fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating story that... Um, um, endurance athletes um, or ultra marathon runners, you know, produce lactic acid, um, and that that ultimately limits their performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you had a bacteria in your gut, this again has been shown in in in, in mice mm-hmm. um, that that can that have that enzyme to change to metabolize uh, lactic acid, which gets into the gut from the muscle systemic circulation into short chain fatty acids, which are then absorbed again and our fuel um, for our body, you know. So wow. th- these these mice who have this ent- these particular microbes mm-hmm. were able to do, I've, I've got 20% more endurance oh than God. mice who didn't have this. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> Another example is dopamine. You know, yeah. dopamine, um, um, so uh, treatment of, um, of, of, uh, of Parkinson's disease, where we use L-DOPA, um, and uh, much of this L-DOPA is metabolized in the periphery by, um, you know, both our microbes, but also human cells. And so this unpredictability of side effects or of effectiveness of L-DOPA treatment has been, so the microbiome has been implicated in that unpredictability because depending what what microbes you have, you have more or less metabolism in the periphery of that molecule. Wow. So it doesn't even, doesn't even get to the brain. Wow. So these are three examples, you know, and I think we'll learn many more that um, side effects, effectiveness of treatments, um, uh, you know, um, exercise performance, mm-hmm. um, emotion, uh, you know, emotionality are all affected by different types of um, microbial um, um, populations. And, and, and that's important because there is this big inter-individual difference. So we, we don't have 
you know, in terms of genetics, we, we're actually very similar to mice, you know, like I, I forgot the number exactly, 95% or 90% similar to, to mice even. So the person next to you, uh, you, you're very similar. In terms of our microbial strains, we're very different. You know, there, there's very little similarity. And so depending on what combination of ecosystem of microbes you have, you'll respond differently in all these examples that I mentioned, so, you know, to therapy, to just long distance running, to, um, you know, your level of depression. Mm -hmm. So this is the fascinating thing. It's, we're talking a lot about this personalization of medicine. Exactly. You know, that's the age of personalized medicine. Well, the microbes will have a lot to do with it. It's not just our genes. You know, I think the microbes will play a, a key role in this. So interesting. You talk about in your book how, as you were talking about Parkinson's patients, you can see gut changes sometimes even 30 years before their diagnosis. What do you, what do you kind of gather from that? I know it's, you can hypothesize a lot of things from it, but what do you think about that? Yeah, so, um, you know, there seem to be two types of Parkinson's patients in terms of their um, ideology goes. So in some of them, the entry point is the gut. In others, it's the olfactory system, so both entry levels to the central nervous system. Um, in terms of the gut, um, it I, I think, you know, it, it most likely boils down to some inflammatory process in the gut in in predisposed individuals. And we don't know if that's the same mechanism I mentioned earlier, the leaky gut, and then the, you know, the gut-based immunization. Um, but what this leads is to um, development of neurodegenerative changes in certain nerve cells in our little gut, in, 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 in the brain, in, in the, uh, the, the little brain in the gut. And then a, a unique thing seems to be these uh, these Lewy bodies, so these uh, you know precipitated um, proteins, then can travel up the vagus nerve, the, the sensory vagus nerve, and make it into brainstem regions and ultimately to higher brain regions. Mm. So that process from the local inflammation in the gut to these molecules arriving in the brain and triggering um, um, you know, neurodegenerative changes in the, at higher brain levels, mm -hmm. so you get neurological symptoms, um, is, is a very slow process. And as you say, can can take decades, mm -hmm. which is a good thing in some ways, because once we understand, you know, so first of all, I think we will have treatments that will interrupt this process. Mm -hmm. Secondly, if we screen patients early on, um, that, that have the earliest symptoms, we have, you know, 15 years time to, for this intervention to work and to either slow the process of development. So you don't develop Parkinson when you're 60 or 50, but when you're 100, mm. uh, or even at some point cure it. So I think the opportunity, the therapeutic window in Parkinson's disease is actually, uh, you know, pretty high in, in terms of, and so the role of the microbes, it's been shown patients with Parkinson's have state of dysbiosis, so their microbiomes are different. Um, and it's the same story as many other diseases that you have a group of um, 
you know, pro-inflammatory um, microbes and you have a group of um, beneficial, protective, so the ones that produce short-chain fatty acids. We don't know if that's the cause, the, you know, what causative role do these play, but um, I, I think there's a, a very similar pattern <clears throat> evolving besides these, um, that the microbiome has sort of two effects. One is this generic effect on systemic immune activation, local and systemic, and that's mediated through the gut-based immune system and requires a leaky gut. The other one is through this production of specific neuroactive metabolites that we talked about, like you know, canurinine. And um, yeah, so we don't know exactly yet, is it, so for example, if somebody with the first onset of these, <clears throat> um, of, of symptoms, got symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which is essentially constipation, mm-hmm. um, if you put these people on a the healthiest possible diet, a largely plant-based diet, and teach them, you know, stress management and all these things, will that, um, you know, will 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 that slow the process? Um, there is another component. Parkinson's is a prominent investigator at 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 UCLA. Um, Beate Ritz, public health school. Uh, so she studies the population in the Central Valley of California, where there's really an epidemic of Parkinson's disease. Mm. And it's it's thought to be related to the excessive use of pesticides and herbicides. Um, and so obviously, if you're exposed to these chemicals, you know, which then play a role in the development of these first the gut changes mm. and then obviously diet alone will not help. You know, you, you have to. So this then it, then it becomes a public health issue. Uh, it's it's amazing. In my practice, I've seen several patients from the Central Valley. You know that are exposed to these toxins when dust crop their mm. plants go over their farm mm. and spray these these herbicides and pesticides. You know, it, it's mm. uh, that this is still allowed is is really remarkable. I know. That is so interesting. Kind of on the same note, you also talk about autism and how 40% of patients diagnosed with autism suffer from GI symptoms. Many exhibit altered gut microbiota composition with affecting, you know, metabolites found in their bloodstream. And you talk about a fascinating study done at Caltech where a mice model of autism showed a transplantation of the stool from the abnormally behaving mouse into a healthy mouse baby that was able to also create the same abnormalities. That's what, what do you, what, what do you take out from that study? Yeah. So this is also, uh, you know, so Dr. Masmanian at Caltech mm-hmm. is sort of in behind this and uh, Elaine Shaw, who's mm-hmm. is now at UCLA. Um, <clears throat> this field has also, uh, you know, moved forward fairly rapidly. Um, I personally think that autism spectrum disorder starts in utero with, um, um, you know, a low-grade immune activation in the pregnant mother, um, because, like for example, metabolic syndrome in the pregnant mother is a risk factor for for uh, their offspring, for her offspring developing, um, um, you know, autism spectrum disorders, because brain changes have been identified before delivery. Wow. So, 
There's clearly, and, and that some of the mouse models, these um, maternal immune activation models use that same principle. So something happens in the mother that then will lead to, to the offspring and the offspring then has um, an altered gut microbiome and some interventions have shown to, um, to imp improve the symptoms. And as, he's, as he mentioned, this study transplant from uh, an affected mouse into a germ-free mouse can produce some of the symptoms. But is this has gone further already that, you know, we have human, a human example where fecal microbial transplant from, from healthy donors into patients, into children, adolescents um, with autism spectrum um, has been shown not just to only to change the microbiome composition, also some of the metabolites and also has shown to improve symptoms, both gut and um, mm -hmm. behavioral symptoms. And that's one of the few examples where a fecal microbial transplant in humans actually, actually works. There's not many examples, mm -hmm. but this one, um, so my feeling again is, you know, this, this disease starts earlier, mm -hmm. way before delivery. Mm -hmm. But if you have something that can attenuate the symptoms, it's really a huge uh, step beyond what we have now, you know, where this, this is one of the most devastating uh, diseases for, for mothers and parents, you know, you have to have affected children. Um, but it's going to be interesting. There, there haven't been that many studies really that, that prove that link that what happens to the mother during pregnancy. I mean, for example, like one of the first things that came up to me Mm -hmm. uh, during the pandemic, you know, when there, there were questions in the, in the press, are mothers, um, you know, pregnant? What, should should women not get pregnant? Yeah. And the first thing I thought about is these these mouse models, you know, mm -hmm. the maternal immune activation. And there's epidemiological studies from Scandinavia where during flu epidemics, there was a wave of increased um, autism spectrum kids later. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. I mean, God forbid that that happens. You know, we don't know that yet. Um, but um, that's one of the first things that I thought about. You know, is, is, this, uh, is this a danger? And given all the things we know about it, I would not be surprised if, if, if the, a connection will come out from, from that. You know, in always in genetically um, at-risk populations. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a general thing. You know, our genes clearly have a big word to say of who gets really sick from a microbial disturbance or mm -hmm. dysbiosis mm -hmm. that that applies to all the diseases you know if if you if you have risk genes yes the microbiome will be much more like changes will be much more likely to to play a role um if you don't have any risk genes or if you're extremely resilient genetically resilient person nothing will happen you know it's uh, so that's this interplay between the the genome network with the microbiome network is another example of that. You know, it's it's not individual genes; it's sort of the the the, the whole network of these two super organisms or super systems that that interact with each other. That makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about early life in utero. And I love that part in the book where you talk about when you were doing that documentary with the Yanomami people. And you saw this Yanomami girl delivering a child. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and what was kind of so interesting about that versus this very sterile 
way we deliver in the Western world, a lot of C-sections, we're seeing, you know, C-section babies have a lot more of this dangerous pathogen, Clostridium difficile that can grow. C-section babies are more likely to be obese and this interesting change in their microbiome at birth because they're not affected, they're not exposed to that vaginal um, mm. microbiome. What? Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that, Yana Mommy girl? Uh, yeah, first of all, it's deeply ingrained in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> this was like a long time ago, you know. I was I was extremely fortunate. This probably won't happen again. Certainly mm-hmm. not with 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 U.S. Uh, medical yeah. schools. Yeah. That you would get the opportunity to take off a summer and participate in an expedition like that. You know, which yeah. in retrospect, I mean, I wish I had the knowledge now. I, I would mm-hmm. love to go back to this place. Yeah. Sadly, you know, and this shows you something. Many of these Yanomamis were wiped out by the pandemic. Um, um, like many of the elders and medicine men, I mean, it, it was heartbreaking for me because I, I still have this film, you know, at some point I want to put it on YouTube, just haven't had the chance to. Um, but um, I'm sure very few of these people that we met at the time are still alive, you know, mm-hmm. despite their very healthy microbiome. They're the most diverse microbiome of any population in wow. the world. And um, yeah, so this story was, you know, these uh, these indigenous people they invited us into their village, which is a sort of a round structure, and the 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 head of the village assigned us a, a, a hammock somewhere. So each of us we were three two two medical students and the filmmaker. Each of us ended up in a different family and in a in a hammock, yeah. very closely connected to like you could feel any movement of anybody else so you would wake up if the person next to you <laughs> moved so i woke up one one night that was a full moon night and um you know i had to I had to go to the bathroom and first of all I, I i noticed that you know it was not that easy to get out of this round structure because mm-hmm. they locked the gates um and secondly, then I was amazed to see this this girl squatting there and with this banana leaf under her and, you know, delivered this baby, um, cut the umbilical cord herself. Uh, there was nobody there, not, not the father nor any midwife. Or, um, and this baby fell into the dust where, I mean, these people have many pets, you know, wild animals that they domesticate. Mm-hmm. So this must have been packed, this, this floor with, with microbes of all sorts, you know, and um, we, yeah, and then we followed this because we stayed in this village for a couple of weeks. We followed this child and growing up and being nursed and uh, um, being healthy, you know, without any health issues. Oh. I'm sure there's a lot of kids that babies that do not survive or get diseases, you know, but we didn't really see that. And mm. I, I don't know how many statistics there are. I mean, there's even, you know, horribly sounding things that because they feel that a mother with who has to work um, in the fields all day can only grow, uh, raise one child at a time. Mm. So if there are twins, they, they killed the, you know, the second, the second twin. And, um, so you ne- you'll you'll never see a twin in in in, in these wow. in these villages, and, wow. um, but it, yeah, this will always stay with me because uh, it's it's the opposite, the total opposite of what we're doing today. You know, it's uh, yeah. 
And before we kind of go into the conclusion, there's just one patient that you talk about that I feel like I, in the ER, see a lot. And kind of before reading your book and being able to use that as a reference and and, and advising them to read it, I would just scratch my head. Um, it was Bill. He this patient had years of GI symptoms, intractable nausea, vomiting, extensive medical workups that were negative. Now in the emergency room, we've seen this patient countless times, and inevitably, you're right. They're deemed as these drug seekers, brushed off because all the medical tests come out negative. And I would feel so frustrated and almost um, reflect that as a, oh God, I don't know, like try to get them out of here. But it was really because I couldn't help them and they were suffering and I just didn't know where to look for answers. And you talk about how you successfully treat patients like this. Before we conclude, can you just talk very briefly about this exaggerated gut reaction that they have and how you kind of treat that? Yeah, so this became one of the most common patient types in my in my practice. And once people know they come from all over the country because they, they're so frustrated. And, um, you know, more recently, the, the last year, um, often the mother made the diagnosis by Googling the symptoms. And yeah. she, up, she said, I think my child has, my son has um, cyclical vomiting syndrome. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, I think it's important to realize that there's different categories. There's some that are kind of idiopathic. Others come with um, regular, often excessive cannabis use. Mm. Uh, definitely a complication of uh, you know of, of cannabis use, which is rarely mentioned. Mm. And um, so, if somebody comes to me and is a heavy smoker or consumer of of, of, of pot, I would tell them you first have to get off it before you can do anything. Because as long as you're on that. And and it's so just like with opioids, it works really well to treat the acute symptoms. Mm-hmm. So if you know if if you smoke a joint um, or consume an edible, it will stop the symptoms often. Mm-hmm. But it also gets you hooked on on this external mechanism of uh, suppressing the symptoms, and it becomes less and less effective. Uh, so I I make I I learned this in my practice. Once that has happened, um, it's sort of a combination of things. Um, one is there is this, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've run into this medication, um, amitriptyline, the tricyclic um, antidepressant, not really used as antidepressant anymore, but in in low doses, being probably the most effective medication for for for, for the treatment prophylactic. Wow. Not not uh, not for the acute uh, attack, but prophylactically, and for the, for the acute attack, um, uh, benzodiazepines, um, you know, clonazepam, um, in 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 our hands has sort of been the, the most effective way. What what's important about it is to take this at the first onset of these preliminary prodromal symptoms. Once somebody gets into this this pattern of recurrent vomiting. There's few things that actually stop it. Um, you know, I mean, opioids do that, and uh, unfortunately, that that has out of desperation in, in many emergency rooms. That's that has been used. Um, but uh, I would say the majority of my patients got better once I've, you know, made sure they they cannot take um, they uh, they have to get off their habit of of of, of pot consumption, and. Um, yeah, I just recently got an email from somebody I'd seen five years ago, and that person 
was so thankful that it really changed this changed his life wow. um, because as you know um or, or maybe the in the er people don't know how what what devastating impact this can have on a young person's life i mean it's yes. they, they lose their jobs they drop out of college they uh, yeah it's really then they they are stuck with their parents and never leave their parents house it's it's one of the most severe consequences i think of a of a disease at young age mm-hmm. uh, and and then it's particularly heartbreaking you know the response of the medical system it's gotten better so at ucla I think we've done some educational mm-hmm. efforts, you know, they will be referred to one of us in, in gastroenterology to mm-hmm. for, for for treatment, but that's not the case in many other um, yeah. hospitals and private practices. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say it's it's something I can diagnose. I think I mentioned this in the book within two minutes and somebody comes in. It's a typically yeah. it's it's young male patients, more mm-hmm. common in, in males. Mm-hmm. They come in with their mother or primary caregiver. <laughs> So if somebody comes in, you know, being 27 years old and comes in with their, with their mother, then you, yeah. you know, and um, so th- this is the fun part of it, you know, how fast you can diagnose it. Yeah. And then the second is you give a very stereotypic recommendation mm-hmm. of treatment. And in most cases, it just needs adjustment. So the medication and I would say 70% of patients get better or some of them, it disappears completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, so I, I think you'll see that a lot more in the future with, um, you know, the more prevalent um, cannabis consumption. Yeah. I, I don't know how the medical system is going to deal with that. You know, it's, it's definitely. Yeah, no, that that makes total, total sense. So kind of just to wrap up, let's maybe talk about briefly some of the ways that we can maybe reprogram an abnormal brain gut axis and kind of what we can do maybe to keep our guts healthy. Are there any ways to reprogram? Um, yeah. So I mean, the first thing, um, so when, when I read, uh, wrote my first book, I, I was less optimistic about this because, uh, you know, the, the idea was in general, once it's programmed, you can't really, the damage is done. Um, and in my early talks, I, I would say that. Um, in the meantime, we know that fairly rapidly, you can actually change it if you switch, you know, from a um, from a plant-based diet or from, 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 a, from a vegetarian diet to a keto diet. Mm-hmm. Within 48 hours, there are changes in the microbiome. And so, yeah, we know we we, we can't change it and we know, this is kind of what I use in my practice, explaining patients. There's influence of the brain and there's influence of your diet um, and your lifestyle, exercise, and um, sleep. Um, so from from the brain part, um, an increased stress responsiveness. Uh, you know, there are these simple techniques like uh, abdominal regular abdominal breathing, diaphragmatic breathing. Um, Mindfulness-based stress reduction, either with groups or with apps. Um, if it's more, you know, more severe, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, from a diet, uh, in my opinion, so the diet that I recommend in my second book is if you if you eat a diet that has first and foremost the well-being of your microbes um, in mind, 
you will do the best thing for your own gut health and for your overall health. Because th that diet, you know, which is essentially rich in complex carbohydrates and rich in polyphenol molecules, all of which go down to your microbes in the gut to be broken down into these healthy metabolites. They increase the diversity, the richness, um, and all the things we talked about can be positively influenced by that kind of a diet. And Mm -hmm. The diet is a largely plant-based diet, Not doesn't have to be vegan or vegetarian. Mm -hmm. If anything, a vegan diet in epidemiological studies has been shown to be associated with more um, psychiatric and psychological symptoms. But that could be reverse causation, you know, that people who are more anxious or more uh, introvert care more for animal cruelty and therefore you know, are more likely to be vegan. So we don't know that, but you don't have to be a vegan to, to, to do the best thing for your microbes. Right. And then, um, yeah, we know that um, moderate exercise, regular exercise has a beneficial effect um, on gut permeability. Um, and so I always say there's, there's three arms to this. Uh, one is targeted at the, the mind, the, the, the brain. One is targeted at the, at, at the diet and the other one is lifestyle um, some interaction with sleep i mean sleep has an an anti-inflammatory effect to my knowledge there's not many studies that have actually connected um, sleep in general but there there are studies that um with um uh, you know with with uh, shift workers mm. that, that is that clearly alters the, the the microbial composition and 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 metabolites in a negative way. So the, the increased risk for metabolic syndrome and obesity in in shift workers is related to changes in the microbiome. So I I often say you know the conclusions the recommendations we knew before the microbiome we knew a healthy lifestyle uh, common <laughs> sense but. <laughs> What we what we now do we feed in the the pieces of the puzzle that we didn't know how that works you know yeah. so this is totally. yeah and you also tell us um, kind of some things to really avoid in the North American diet you talk about the industrial agriculture emulsifiers sweeteners you know these processed foods how meat is made um, especially in these kind of the, the settings of you know some of the the ways that these animals are grown and how detrimental it can be to our health. Anything you want to touch on that before we start wrapping up? No. So in, so in terms of diet, what, is, what I you know recommend in my in, in my second book, you should look at what you eat, uh, when you eat it, um, and where it comes from, mm -hmm. the food. So I think you have to become a lot more aware and conscious. Mm -hmm. The first step to all of this is I'm going to ask you, what can you do for a healthier gut? The first of all is awareness, and you you need you know evidence based information because there's so much noise and chatter on the internet that people go crazy. You know what they should do, yeah. and a lot of people make a lot of money with with some of these you know these these fake science um, promotions, and um, so yeah, I would say if 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 you know, we talked about what to eat, so it's the largely plant-based. If you do that, you have to be aware. Many of our plant-based foods come from from areas that is treated with, uh, 
you know, in, in industrial agriculture with Roundup um, and glyphosate that stays on these on these plants because it's been used in higher and higher concentrations. And for a long time, it was thought that doesn't do anything to human cells, which is still there's this pathway that that human cells don't have to convert it. But the microbes have that uh, that that pathway, the Shikimati path, pathway. Mm -hmm. So this has never been studied. And if you look at it, it's the very limited literature. And I think it's, in my opinion, this is sort of being suppressed. I mean, like without saying I'm a conspiracy theorist, but yeah. it almost seems like there's such an incredibly strong lobby to yes. doesn't want this to get out that um, when you eat a plant-based food that it is contaminated now by all these chemicals, you know, mm -hmm. by the by the pesticides and herbicides, um, like the Central Valley is the biggest producer of, of fruits and vegetables in the country. Mm -hmm. I think it supplies 40%, mm -hmm. but it's also the biggest user of all these chemicals, you know? Um, so we know that you need a higher and higher doses to be effective. Now it's on, it's, it's in all these products. So if you eat a very, you think you eat a very healthy diet, mm -hmm. but you're killing off a lot of your, bacteria because you eat these chemicals you know and mm -hmm. so i think organic and in better regenerative organic comes in as a very important label mm -hmm. um and um i i was never aware of this you know quite honestly i did not as a as a typical gastrologist for much of my career i was not really aware of any of these diet aspects mm -hmm. and but now I am, and it's it's kind of remarkable how much of that. There was a big study out of Stanford, a paper um, that sort of came to the conclusion: organic food is has has no difference to uh, traditionally grown food. Mm -hmm. And it turned out there were the sponsors of that um, that department at at Stanford were heavily subsidized by the some of the big food corporations. Wow. Um, wow. And so, yeah, I, I think the individual consumer has to be really careful, um, really get their food from sources that are certified mm -hmm. uh, organic. And I think it will come to that also that this regenerative organic, which is a whole other thing about the environment, you know, and not just taking out of the soil, but giving back to the soil. Um, that, that that's become like really important to you. So it's it's the larger plant-based diet that comes, that you know where it comes from and what it's exposed to and how it's grown. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would say it, it's it's become more difficult to get the healthy food. And it's the reason that we see so many of these diseases have kept increasing the last 75 mm -hmm. years because of lack of awareness and, um, you know, greenwashing of some companies the products are labeled organic but there's many loopholes in the organic label certification that people can still use stuff um yeah and so it's this has become a, a real science i think the i feel responsible now in my role to the, the public to raise that awareness you know to um um, to educate people about this, yeah. you know. Yeah, and ju just to close up, it sounds like, did you finish your documentary? You're doing it on in that interconnectedness 
Is it no, we're still, we're still, so we, we finished a lot of the filming. We have what's called a teaser. Okay. Uh, we're now pitching it to streaming um, companies, mm-hmm. you know, like Netflix or Amazon. And um, yeah, it's it's been slowed down for a year by the pandemic, mm-hmm. like many other things. But, um, you know, and, and now that I have this, this second book out of the way, so mm-hmm. still in the midst of this promotion mm-hmm. of... Um, I hope we can mention this briefly at the end. Please. So I, I won't have the time to really um, wrap up this film. And, yeah. and I should say, you know, the, the film was done together with um, sort of a very unusual team. Um, and a key role was played by a UCLA student that worked in, in our center at the time. And um, yeah, we had many conversations. So usually our study-related discussions ended up in these conversations about this interconnectedness. And at some point, we made a decision, you know, we should make a movie. And uh, kind of quite an unlikely uh, way for a film, film to originate. And But it's so far, I mean, the people that we interviewed has been really, you know, it's been wonderful. I mean, really. to watch it. I can't wait. Just to remind us, where can we find you? So probably the simplest way is to go yeah. to my website, emeronmayer.com. Yeah. And um, when you click there, it will open up with a pop-up window, mm-hmm. uh, sign up for the for our newsletter, which mm-hmm. will give you an updated information on a regular basis about all aspects of mind, um, gut and microbiome and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and also on all the social media channels, you know, the, the, uh, the, You'll see all these channels listed there, from from, from Instagram <laughs> and YouTube and uh, you know Facebook. So yeah, so the website is probably the easiest way to connect. Right, that's perfect, Dr. Mayor. Thank you so much for your time. We have I've learned so much more than I even thought I knew about before reading your book, and I just hope everybody else can kind of get some exposure to what you're saying. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and the last pitch, so the last pitch, it's it's on my website as Please. well, you know, this, this promotion. So this new book is called The Gut Immune Connection. Mm-hmm. And many of the answers that I gave you to your questions, you know, to very informed questions, I have to say, um, are summarized in, in, in that book. So it takes the mind-gut connection to a whole new level. And um, both in terms of our gut health and our immune health, uh, and you know what role this plays in, in in brain disorders, but it also goes into the soil health with the microbes in the soil, uh, which influences plant health and plant plant nutrients, um, and then ultimately into um, you know planetary health because I mean it's it's kind of amazing good example of this interconnected concept that you start with gut microbes and you end up with networks that, um, you know, have to do with climate change. And, uh, you know, it's really a fascinating journey. So anybody who's interested in these, not just in their own health, but in mm-hmm. the bigger picture, I think I would highly recommend it. Thank you for joining me on this week's The Hidden Body. It's been a pleasure to have you. Until next time. This is a space for educational discussion and should not be taken as medical advice. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. 
please talk with the appropriate medical professional for any medical questions regarding your health.